0: Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into
1: the details with some of the best in the business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Rodcast. Today I am joined by two fantastic guests. We have Simon Howley, the tax specialist from Bell Howley, and we're also very honored to have Andrew Thornhill QC. So for our listeners, we've had Simon Howley on the uh, on the podcast before, a couple of times to talk about tax. But those of you who don't know Andrew Thornhill, so a bit of background is Andrew Thornhill became a QC in 1985. He has extensive experience across the full range of tax law, with a special emphasis on share schemes, inheritance tax and capital gains tax planning, and also litigation. Uh, He advises on corporate reorganisations and the use of offshore structures to hold property assets, and has been described by the Legal 500 As being without doubt one of the most learned and experienced tax counsel in the UK. So, we are clearly talking to the right people today about our tax issues. So, thank you very much for coming on, Andrew and of course Simon. And today, I guess we're going to talk a little bit about Section 24 mitigation and some incorporation structures for landlords and property and businesses, and also a bit about estate planning and legacy.
0: Okay, sure, let's kick off, shall we? Let's deal with the session 24 issues. Yeah, obviously, it was announced a long time ago, 2015, by Mr. Osborne, the Chancellor at that time. It's important it only applies to residential landlords, not commercial. does not affect companies. We'll get onto that incorporation later on. It's not really applicable to, if you're a basic rate taxpayer, It's only the high rate taxpayers that really get affected by this. It's, it's quite a penal change in the law because it, it, it not only affects buy-to-let mortgages, it's all finance costs related to dwellings or the activity of, of renting out dwellings. So as a, an extreme example, if if your core business to rent out residential property um, and you went and bought a car or a van to use within that, that, that business, the tax relief would also apply to the interest payments on that HP Finance also affects of course the arrangement fees and other finance costs applicable to, to any and loans as well so it's quite broad reaching um, changing the law really.
2: Well the, it, it clearly is a bit of a political thing um, as you will remember there was a lot of talk once about pension funds being allowed by residential property and that was stopped um, but a lot of people see residential property as the best kind of pension. So Section 24 hits them very hard, denying them essentially higher rate tax relief for interest payments. And the interest payments are obviously the largest part in most people's expenditure if they're buying accommodation to rent. What's the solution? The straightforward solution, as you said, uh, Simon, is the restriction in Section 24 doesn't affect companies. Secondly, corporation tax rates are falling. Therefore, there's a very strong incentive to take your property portfolio and put it basically in a company. That gives rise to quite a few problems, but we think uh, uh, that they're all capable of solution if they're managed properly. I mean, taking some of the problems, the obvious one is capital gains tax, but there is Section 162 of the Taxation of Capital Gains Tax Act, which, if you take proper care to come within it, allows you effectively to hold over the gains and deduct the gain that, that would have accrued on the disposal from the cost price of the shares you get as consideration for the transfer. Then you have to think about SDLT. We'll come on to that in a minute. That can be handled, but you've got to do it the right way. Thirdly, there's a problem which uh, worries a lot of people. What do you do about mortgages? There's bound to be a mortgage because, of course, we're talking about non-deductibility of interest, and interest arises with mortgages. Do you have to go cap in hand to your mortgage lender? and say, can I have a new mortgage for my company? You probably don't want to do that, because he may inflict worse terms than you've got already. So how you handle that is another issue. But those are the three broad problems I see if one is going the incorporation route, which, as I think you would agree, Simon, is the obvious solution in most cases. Yes, it is.
0: It's just uh, the hard bit really is... is is finding the correct clients. And we can get onto what exactly is a, a property business. It's very important it's a business and not just a, a passive investment vehicle. Uh, but we, we can get onto that when we get into the kind of uh, detail of the incorporation and, and the mechanics and how to do that, of course. It's also important, I think at this point, to understand what a dwelling house is, a dwelling. Obviously, um, HMOs are dwellings. A dwelling it's, its ordinary meaning just where you live for your day-to-day domestic life. So it's, it's not, I don't, I don't think, anyway, ambiguous. It's not commercial premises. And if so that you,
1: wouldn't apply to hotels or... Um, no, no they they clearly Yes, sort of Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, and if you have some clients where they have a mixed commercial and residential portfolio, then you have to apportion any interest uh, restriction accordingly uh, the way the portfolio is mixed.
2: Yes, if you have a, a mixed portfolio like that, I suppose the obvious course is to try and split it. So that if you're going to incorporate the residential bit, you don't have to incorporate the whole thing. Uh, and if that were the case, the ideal medium for causing a split is to form a partnership of some of the properties, but not of the others. Then you identify the particular business which you want to incorporate.
1: So in in that regard, would you put the entire portfolio into the partnership and then go from the partnership to incorporation on just the residential dwellings leaving out you
2: know, the- my point would be that suppose you've got a mixture of commercial and residential you yeah. haven't got a problem with the commercial so no. what you really want to do is take the residential and go into partnership it could be with your wife or with a company you own and that separates the residential business from the commercial one and then you only proceed to incorporation with the residential one because that's where section 24 hits you
0: but of course if you wanted to anyway have its your portfolio held within a um, a corporate wrapper so to speak you could I suppose incorporate all your properties and maybe then have a holding company and then have a underneath that subsidiary for your investment portfolio and a um, subsidiary for your trading entities.
2: Yes, there's no bar to doing that. But I think most people would say if as soon as you have a company, you create a double layer of capital gains tax, once within the company and once uh, on the shares in the company. And by and large, I think, unless you were married to having companies, you probably would say, well, I'll keep the commercial stuff outside a company. And is there, is there any negatives
1: that you can think of to incorporating the residential that maybe people might be looking at this to go, OK, I'm going to incorporate my residential portfolio because I want to mitigate the Section 24 issues. But could they be walking into any other issues that maybe they're not thinking about that could cause them problems?
2: Well, I, I would say the obvious trap they're walking into and they need to think about is how do you cash in? Mm. You see, if you stick everything inside a company, the company can sell a property, but then you've got to get the money out. Exactly. And how do you do it? I suppose you put five properties into the company, you sell one of the properties, and you think, oh, I could, like, I could spend some of that money. you then got the problem of getting it out of the company, which isn't the easiest thing at all. So that I think you've got to think very carefully. Uh, If you're going to put everything in your residential portfolio into a company, you've got to be thinking ahead, what is my exit strategy? If I'm, for example, treating these five properties as my pension, then probably at some stage I'll say, right, I'll sell them all, liquidate the company and take the cash out. That's easy. But if you want to sell a property piecemeal, putting it in a company actually is not a very good idea.
1: So is there then a way that someone could mitigate Section 24 who still wants to liquidate uh, or sell those assets in the future, maybe in that piecemeal scenario?
2: Um, I could think of structures when you incorporate the company which would make it easier. I mean, for example, you could incorporate, I think, for redeemable preference shares. Now, in this particular case, the preference shares would be issued for full consideration. So you could, I think, have a repayment of capital on those preference shares, which would be funded out of a sale of a particular property. That might be the solution. Okay.
1: And then in terms of, obviously, we spoke about getting hold of the capital and taking the capital out of the company and the issues that might come with that what about the income and would the same apply to taking the income out of the company so if it's rental income that people are, uh, are trying to get their hands well, on. It's certainly
2: that That's an important point of course I mean if you can't get relief at the higher rates for the interest if that's the problem you start you probably won't have any income at all because the time you pay tax and the interest, there's nothing left. Uh, If you incorporate the company, right, the company pays a relatively low rate of corporation tax and furthermore, its profits will be reduced by the totality of the interest. So you've got something you can pay out. And of course, the only two ways really you can pay it out are either salary or dividend Now, if you take the first problem you put for us to look at, where the wife of the owner of the property was fully employed, I mean, she could still do some duties, a bit of bookkeeping and so forth, which might enable her to take out a salary which came within um, a a very low income tax rate. Uh, Otherwise, it's dividends. The taxation of dividends is moderately severe but not too bad but that will be an obvious way of doing it so just to kind of
1: for the people listening about that example i think we we spoke about a couple who who were incorporating their own portfolio that was obviously looking at the different duties that they had within that portfolio of it of how it ran because i think simon touched on this point before In order to incorporate that portfolio it needs to be a a business and not just an investment
2: portfolio Um, yes that's true yes although it's a funny thing actually on on that um, virtually anything a company does is a business but when it comes to partnership and we've got to talk about partnership when we come to SDLT um, in the partnership law there has to be a business But the case law makes it quite clear that simply renting a property is not enough. You've got to have a bit of activity. So hopefully, in these cases we're looking at, we can say there's a bit of activity going on, a bit of management, etc., etc. Where that is the case, and let's assume there is, then it shouldn't be too difficult to justify some director's salaries uh, which will be deductible as management expenses by the company. You can't go over the top, but uh, it would be a useful way of extracting some money.
0: Because there is no definition in the legislation of what a, a business actually is. So we have to go back to case law, really. And the, 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 the case Ramsey um, gives us um, the indication of what a business might be. Shall we go over the, over the Ramsey case in a little, little bit of detail before we get on to partnerships and stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, Simon,
2: so do you want to say something about that case or not?
0: Yes, yes, I will do. Yeah, I've got some. because uh, Ramsey, it, it's, it, it's, she basically, along with her husband, she had a HMO, which was 10 flats, but it was on a large plot of land. There was grounds, there was a car park, a garage in, And Mrs. Ramsey could demonstrate that like, she spent more than 20 hours a week and doing things like repairs and maintenance, after the garden, uh, helping tenants there. So she was actively involved in managing the portfolio. So she could quite clearly demonstrate, in her case anyway, that um, like she was running a business. So, But you'll, you'll have to view the facts on each case as and when it occurs. But it gives us some guidelines, really, um, as, as, as what kind of activity you need to do to justify to HMRC, should they query it, uh, what a business
2: actually is. Can, can you just remind me, Simon, which tax was Ramsey concerned with?
0: Uh, incorporation relief.
2: Yes, you see, because that, that's important to be clear. Some The cases on business often come up in different contexts. For example, with business property relief, you get the same issue, but the tests are different. Yeah. Certainly in the Ramsey example, I would have thought that was a very clear case, of a business one probably doesn't have to go as far as happened in that case but that was a clear case
0: yeah so under section 162 relief in corporation relief you have to transfer the whole of the business has to go into the uh, the company as opposed to there is a section 165 where you can mix and match what you transfer um right. it's a different relief
1: so so can you just quickly Explain the difference between a business property relief and incorporation relief.
2: There. Uh, well, I mean, it, 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 it really comes down to this: the law uses the concept of business in various places. You want to get business property relief for inheritance tax? There's uh, there's certain restrictions. I mean, purely investments. Uh, type of operations are not businesses, and the law goes out of its way to say so. For partnership purposes, partnership is carrying on business in common with a view to profit, and there are lots of cases on whether tenanted properties can constitute a business in that context. In the context of incorporation relief, that talks about a person transferring a business as a going concern to a company in exchange for shares. And then there's, there's case law on what's a business for that purpose. So um, the trouble is you've got various bits of legislation using the word business, but usually in slightly different senses. So you've got to concentrate when it comes to incorporation uh, on the meaning of business in relation to a company. Fortunately, there, the um, law has been quite generous and most things that a company does will constitute a business. However, here comes the trap. In order to get relief from stamp duty land tax, and just pausing there, if you had to pay stamp duty land tax on incorporating your portfolio, you would not incorporate your portfolio. It would be an enormous one-off cost, which you wouldn't want to incur. When you do the SDLT planning, you probably, I think, have to form a partnership first and then incorporate the partnership. That comes within the capital gains tax relief, but for SDLT purposes, the partnership is an essential step. As soon as you mention the word partnership, you then have to ask yourself, is this activity a a business for partnership purposes, not merely for incorporation purposes. So you've got to keep your eyes on two little bits of learning. One, on what's a business for partnership purposes, and two, what's a business for incorporation purposes. The problems are not insoluble, but anyone who thinks that the law is exactly the same in both cases is deluding himself. You've got to get it right and think about it. That's,
1: that's very interesting. So previously you said, obviously, when people are looking to mitigate Section 24 and incorporate, one of the big things they've got to understand is their exit strategy. Yeah. And we kind of touched on one of those possible exit strategies just then, which could be um, inheritance. So passing passing things on to, to loved ones, obviously. Yes. So is, is what they choose to do in terms of mitigating Section 24 – Obviously, they need to they need to think about any inheritance and estate planning at the same time of what they're going to be doing in the future because clearly that's going to have a big effect on that. Yes,
2: yeah. of things.
1: So we've touched on putting a portfolio into a partnership for business purposes to negate the SDLT to then incorporate.
2: And then it will incorporate, yes.
1: And would there be any reasons why someone might want to incorporate straight from that residential portfolio and not go through an LLP, just to incorporate it all at once.
0: I think it's important to distinguish between an, an LLP Sorry, and a normal yeah. partnership.
2: Yeah, a partnership, yes. yes.
0: Yeah. So, obviously, you've got a general partnership, mm-hmm. okay, between one or two or three in, 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 individuals or partners. You've got a, a, an LLP, which is obviously is, is taxed in the same way as a normal partnership, but an LLP is a corporate body. So, whilst we can incorporate a partnership between a husband and wife or, uh, or, or two individuals, you can, you can incorporate that partnership, but an LLP, you, you cannot incorporate it into a limited company. They're both legal bodies. So, what, you can transfer the business of an LLP into a limited company with slightly
1: different wording, which is important to, yeah. to distinguish between them.
2: Sorry, that was a. Why uh, well, I think sit, sit forget about LLPs and just say we're going from individual ownership to partnership to company. Yes. you've raised a very important question. Inheritance, you've got to be very careful. You see, putting your residential property in eventually into a company, while it's very nice from the point of view of section twenty four. It isn't wildly effective for inheritance tax, but but that really is because owning residential property is very unlikely to constitute something which counts as a business for business property relief. So I suspect most people who incorporate do it because of Section 24, but they're taking the view that in the long run, the properties will be sold, they'll liquidate the company, and they've got a very nice tidy lump sum which is there for their retirement to be invested in various ways. Um, Inheritance tax-wise, forming the company isn't a particularly valuable thing because it won't qualify for BPR. If you were to form a company and if you said, I'm so wedded to these properties, I want my children and great-grandchildren to benefit from them, which is possibly the case because property has been a very good investment over the last 50 or 60, 70 years. Um, you would have to do something else. You could, for example, create growth shares and perhaps have income shares in your company. You might keep the income shares which have a limited life, and give away the growth shares, if you give them away now, their value could be quite low, so that in the long run, you've saved inheritance tax. But I would say that that was something additional simply to incorporation. Incorporation on its own is not going to be particularly good at saving inheritance tax. You, you need to do more. Another thing you could do, and people have done this, they incorporate a company and they then give away small shareholdings so that you fragment the ownership of the company. Uh, no one owns more, say, than 10%. What's 10% of a private company worth? Far less than the underlying asset value. So that could be a strategy which could be pursued. Um, all I think I would say is, inheritance sex is a separate topic from section 24. It needs a bit of separate consideration. So yeah, it's obviously, that I think that's
1: something people need to have in the back of their mind as well when looking at what uh, what section 24 mitigation they they want to. Uh, they yeah, want yes,
2: I agree with you. You've got to take a long-term view. If you do something for one reason, you've got to ask yourself. Let's have a look at every circumstance. How is it going to affect it? And, and uh, that's important.
0: Planning, basically.
2: Because obviously people's
1: wants and aspirations change over a long period of time. How adaptable is that scenario? If you have incorporated your residential property portfolio into a company, is it easy to then, go back on that and take it out because as we know rules change often the law changes some people i know are very worried about section 24 being bought in on um on limited companies that have a certain sick code where they it's yeah yeah and what would happen if, if that was the case? Could they then pull them back into resident, into personal ownership or things like that? I think um, being adaptable is, is, is a key consideration as well.
2: Well, I think, I think you've raised a very good point. I mean, when you look at it logically, what is the reason for companies not being caught by Section 24? Um, it's really just accident. I mean, this uh, section 24 is a very political section. Mm. Most people own their little buy-to-let properties individually and didn't bother to have companies. So Mr. Osborne or whoever it was who introduced it didn't think of um, of applying it to companies, but they might. Mm. Um, If they did, you might want to get out of your company. Now, you've got to be careful because... If you, uh, We haven't gone into the mechanics of Section 162, but the broad point is that under Section 162, you don't pay tax on the inherent gain in the properties when you incorporate. Uh, it doesn't, however, disappear magically. What happens is that the gain that would be taxed is deducted from the acquisition cost of the shares which you receive. Now the acquisition cost of the shares is the net value of the business you're putting in. So if you then deduct the gain from that figure, it means that the shares stand you in at a very low cost for capital gains tax, Well, you can see what's going to happen. As soon as you you liquidate the company, the gain, which you've magically made to disappear, suddenly turns up again. So it's a pretty costly exercise. So you probably wouldn't liquidate if Section 24 were extended to companies. What you might do is say, all right, there's not much point in having the income in a company. What I'll do is form a partnership with the company and uh, we'll divide the profits largely to individuals, straight out to individuals rather than the company." And if Section Twenty Four applies, so be it. But at least you 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 can do something. So if people are worried about
1: that, why would they not um, obviously not incorporate in the in the first instance and just do and form a partnership to start with and have maybe um, the beneficial interest to a separate company that doesn't actually hold the assets? Would that would that still work?
2: Um, you could have. A partnership, I suppose, in which there was a corporate partner. I mean, it could do things; it might inject capital or things like that, and um, it it would it would circumvent Section Twenty Four, or could do, I think, uh, and that might be worth uh, that. That could be an objective in itself. And by that route, you haven't relied on Section 162. So you haven't got this terrible worry that eventually the, um, the gain, the capital gain, will resurface. But we're straying into quite interesting territory because, you may remember, a few years ago, we introduced some rules about mixed partnerships, And the effect of those rules was that where you had a partnership between a company and individuals, you can't hide all the profits in the company because it's a lower rate of corporation tax or because Section 24 applies and keep all the capital gains to the individuals because they pay less tax than if you had it in a company. That was a lovely strategy until it was stopped. So... Yes, there could be some merit in the partnership, but as always with tax, um, watch before you leap off.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but the point is, if you need to, before you enter into any, any planning, is to, to look at it in the hole. You need to have some kind of crystal ball looking forward to, the best you can, so you don't just go down one route in a transactional mode and then it's not perfect for you to then pass value on to your children or, or whatever. So you, you must sit down and look at it as best you can in where the client wants to get to.
1: Yeah, it's taking that holistic view and obviously long-term view, and like Andrew said, making sure you're very clear on your exits. And obviously that can change over time, which can, yeah. can create more difficulties. And people get
0: divorced, which is of course is a, a, a classic example of a, <laughs> exactly. how
1: life throw things at you. So we kind of talked about, I know Andrew brought this up right at the beginning, was mortgage issues.
2: Yeah, so a very important point, this. Obviously, you don't want um, uh, to disturb your existing mortgage arrangements. So how do you do it? Well, actually, I think it works very well. Suppose we are going from individual ownership to partnership to company because of our SDLT requirements. Mm -hmm. Typically, when you form the partnership by introducing a new partner, The partner who already holds the properties will say, I declare myself trustee of my interest in these properties, subject to and charged with the existing mortgages upon trust for the partnership. In other words, he won't shift the legal title, because that will get the mortgagee excited. And that helps you very well, because then you have a situation where the partnership merely has an interest under a declaration of trust of the properties. When, therefore, you incorporate the business, the partnership is transferring its beneficial interest under the trust to the company. And although that counts as a transfer for SDLT purposes, It means, of course, that you don't have to do any mucking around with the legal estate. All that happens is the company says, we acknowledge that we're taking over the properties subject to and charge with the mortgages. We will pay the interest and hand the uh, uh, the interest over to the lender or possibly hand it over to the legal owner who then hands it over to the bank or mortgage lender and um, that i think works perfectly satisfactorily from that point of view the company claims its deduction for the interest because it's f- provided the funds for paying the interest and uh, all works very well the whole interest of the original owner has been sorry, the whole interest of the partnership has been transferred to the company. That's what section 162 requires. And we haven't made any inroads onto the more into the mortgage arrangements. The mortgage the the mortgage company I won't say it won't necessarily know it's happened, but it won't be affected in any way whatsoever.
1: Because often now, if you've got a limited company and you want to mortgage a property within that limited company, yes. they ask for a uh, personal guarantee from the uh, from the director. Mm-hmm. Of the yes, of the
2: company. yeah.
1: Company. So, in, would that then create an issue for the mortgage company? If they don't. No,
2: no, no, hang on, because look, um, we started off with the situation. Let's call him Mr. A. He owns 10 properties, they're all subject to mortgages. He's the person liable on the mortgage. He takes, let's say, Mrs. A and the partnership, and in due course, the partnership transfers its business to the company. Now, what's happened to the mortgage? It's still in Mr. A's name. Well, you see the mortgage company is gonna say, Look, we don't worry about a guarantee from you, old chap, because you're liable anyhow. You <laughs> you have got to pay the interest. So, I mean, um, from Mr. A's point of view, it's very nice from section twenty-four and deductibility, from the point of view of liability, he's exactly where he was in the first place.
1: Okay,
0: understood. It's, so it's also important to some lenders don't like you do declarations, because they actually don't um, allow you to do that. So it's important to check the lender's conditions as well.
2: Yes, that's a very important point, uh, Simon.
0: Because some people, I think it's a legal obligation to advise a lender if you do enter into a you know, the declaration or did of trust. So it's, it's not for all lenders, but some lenders... They're no,
2: absolutely right. Um, the first thing to do is check the mortgage document very carefully. Yeah, so absolutely, it's all, yeah.
0: It's all holistic if you have to look at all the legal issues, the accounting issues, the tax you can normally fix, there are a relief there as well. So you have to look at everything to, to make sure you don't fall kind foul of fault any
1: small pitfall. Absolutely. Going back to the partnership to, in, to then go into incorporation. Yes. Would there be any scenarios where you'd want to incorporate that portfolio without going into the partnership first, without creating that partnership?
2: I think the, the it's SDLT, which, um, as far as I can see, is the real reason for having the partnership. If you look at the SDLT rules, they, they cater for partnerships going into companies. They don't, I think, have anything to deal with sole proprietors going into companies. They should have something, but it isn't there. Schedule 15 of the Finance Act 2003 is very clear about partnerships incorporating, but not about anything else. So SDLT is the driving factor, I think, for um, having a partnership. The only other factor which sometimes requires there to be a partnership is where you want to be quite precise about which properties you want to incorporate. You then separate out the partner properties you don't want to incorporate and put only the ones you do want to incorporate into the partnership. Because you remember for 162 relief, you've got to transfer the entire assets of the business as a going concern. So if you've got to carve out bits you don't want to incorporate, you have to form a separate partnership to do it. So there's two reasons for having the partnership. One is to identify exactly what's going to be incorporated. The second, almost inevitably, is to avoid, S- or not, not avoid SDLT, perhaps come within the SDLT reliefs.
0: Yeah, because if, if you went straight from sole sort of trader to, to a company, of course, you would be the owner of that company. Therefore, you're a connected party, and be, you'd be hit with the stamp duty charge straight away. Um, yeah, so yeah. Where there are... Reliefs on the statute books for partnerships. Um, so long as it's, the structure is correct, um, then you, you follow the the, the five or six-step calculation within paragraph ten and twelve going into the partnership, and that should um, relieve you from stamp duty. Um, and there's a paragraph 18 which which allows you to do the same calculation uh, when you then go on to incorporate into the company. So it, it needs to be uh, put in place quite quite precisely.
1: And, and how long would it have to be held in that partnership before you can incorporate? I mean, does it, can it happen straight away, or do you need to prove that it's been in partnership for a certain amount of time?
2: No, I think that's a very good question. I mean, there's no doubt if you slipped from individual ownership to partnership and a week later incorporated the partnership, you're going to raise all sorts of questions about is this partnership a real entity or is it just a stepping stone which we can ignore? Ideally, it would be nice to have at least um, a set of partnership accounts, not necessarily for a whole year, but for a period, and uh, for a return to be made to the revenue, saying this is a partnership, can we pay tax on it as a partnership? A lot of people will say, well, I'm not prepared to wait that long. I would suggest that having... uh, Partnership for less than three months is going to be slightly provocative. It should be all right, but I wouldn't push it too far. What do you think, Simon?
0: I agree. You you can't just hop into a partnership and then hop into a limited company. You need to be, you need an agreement in place between partners, which is quite normal commercially. You need to have submitted a partnership return, tax return to demonstrate to HMIC you are in partnership. You need to be acting as a partnership. There is no Defined time period, but I think if it's too short, it's going to be inflammatory. So, you know It'd have to be years or but it can't also be a week, which is just crazy. I think
2: the other thing I think it's worth sounding a word of caution on is who the partners are because sometimes um, If the marriage isn't very happy say the Mm. father says for the mother says well I'll use my children as partners, but if they're too young um, there's no defined age, uh, they won't really be accepted as capable of entering into a partnership. And that will um, bring the whole house down as well. That's a good point as well. So if we can
1: kind of just go back again onto some of the inheritance issues or, or estate planning. So obviously, Andrew, you mentioned before, putting residential property into a company may mean that you cannot benefit from um, BPR which is business property relief I'm under the understanding that obviously you that would need a trading element to the business in order to get that so if you if you had a group structure in which you had a holding company and then your um, investment residential properties were in a another company owned by that holding company and then maybe you had you set up a new business to do some trading activity, which may not create the same amount of income or capital, but it's the actual activity which um, created sort of more time and input from the people involved. Would that be a way of creating an environment
2: where you might benefit from business property? uh, Under the the current law, the answer is yes. Um, You've got to have a look at section 105 of the Inheritance Tax Act. I think it's subsection three says a business is no good if a business is an investment business. But four, subsection four goes on to say, and this is really interesting, if you have a company which is a holding company in relation to subsidiaries who are mainly engaged in non-investment activities that qualifies for BPR and the important point is the whole value of the company qualifies for BPR notwithstanding that locked within the companies there may be properties perhaps held at the holding company level or in a subsidiary (laughs) makes uh, no difference um and those, uh, those properties are investment properties, but it doesn't stop the whole company getting BPR. So that's extremely valuable. However, note of caution, there has been a statement by the government that they're a bit worried about people getting away with this too much. So it's all right at the moment, may not last forever. Now, there's no reason, uh, just to make the point clear, I suppose you had a trading company, and I suppose you qualified 100% for BPR. You could put, push the trade down to a subsidiary, turn that trading company into a holding company, and then inject your property investment business into the holding company for shares. Mm. Uh, and that would create the structure, which at this moment of time, would qualify for BPR
1: and creating that trading element for um, a residential portfolio is yeah. really isn't doesn't seem to me to be that difficult because obviously there's yeah. an element of management in that, there's various other issues that they could create, so you could create a separate management company to operate from there. So, yeah, that's 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 certainly very interesting,
2: yeah, um, yeah. But do remember 1054 talks about the activities being wholly or mainly non-investment. Now, uh, yep. what does that mean? It means how much time you devote to it, certainly. Look, it means look at the pr- relative profits of the two sides, and possibly also um, look at the relative value of the two sides. So, of course, the property values may be the, the higher ones. So, mm-hmm. it's quite a careful balance. But at mm-hmm. the moment, that's an extremely good strategy. The other thing while you're on inheritance tax, it's worth talking about, I suppose, is this: suppose you have got a family that's got a property investment company and a trading company. Um, what about if you want to finance the trading company, borrow all the money in the property company or against its shares, so you reduce its value uh, and then that the value of the borrowed money goes into the trading company whose value increases. You, you can play around with this quite a lot and yeah. use the property as a weapon to raise cash, which then goes into the business side, and that gives you a very good result. That isn't totally threatened by legislation. There is some legislation against it, but it can be got around.
1: That's That's really, really interesting. Obviously, for business property relief that will affect anything you're handing down to the next generation
2: Correct. correct.
1: what if someone wanted to leave a legacy of these residential properties and the income that they provide ongoing so say for the next generation is there something that they could set up now or on their death in order to create that and Would incorporation help that or hinder it?
2: I I suspect the answer is that if you want to give properties to the next generation, you probably are going to end up by saying, look, if I've got four children and I leave these properties in some way for the benefit of these four children, there's going to be an argument sooner or later because one will say, I want the capital out, and the others will say, don't be stupid, we're going to hold on. And I think that consideration probably takes precedence over everything else. You don't want to create a family row in the next generation. So, quite frankly, I mean, assuming you survive Section 24... (laughs) Um, I think that um, most people would say, let's leave one property to a particular child so they know where they are. Now, it may be in some cases though you're looking at a very valuable portfolio and it's a different kettle of fish. There's there's something that produces a very good income which is going to grow. Um, Having a corporate vehicle then is quite useful because it's a very good way of splitting the value of the company between a number of people, which means in the long run, you're hiding a lot of value in the shares because the shares aren't worth very much. So that's where a company does, I think, come into its own a bit more.
1: And that's where you talked previously about the growth shares and income shares.
2: Well, you you might do that as well. You see, the growth shares and the income shares could be particularly valuable For the first generation that incorporated the business, once you've got the business incorporated and split the value like that, then the value will go on being split uh, for later generations. And that's very valuable. And I think there's a lot to be said for that arrangement, provided you know that the general idea is to keep these properties in the family in the long run and let them accumulate in value. Whereas if it's going to be let each child have a property, if they want to do something in life, they can sell it, and do what they like with it, that's a different kettle of fish. goes to a point which I think is terribly important. Never let tax wag the, the inheritance tail. In other words, always ask the family what in the long run, do you want to achieve? Never mind tax, what do you actually want to do? Uh, mm. You've got to get that right first.
1: And when might a trust come into play?
2: Well, um, trusts, um, the trouble with trusts is that um, the, the good thing, of course, you can have a discretionary trust, mm. which means that no one can force um, the realization of anything to go on for a long time. As long as you've got some good trustees, that's a good idea. Um, Trusts um, pay a relatively high rate of capital gains tax, so they're not particularly attractive from that point of view. Um, On the other hand, it's much easier to get money out because you haven't got a company. If you sell a property, you can dish the capital out. So I think um, where you feel that a sale is likely to happen, I would say have a trust. In preference to the company, because with a company it's so much more difficult to get the money out. So, you've perhaps got three grades. You've got a family where each person wants one property, that's very simple. Mm-hmm. You've got a family where uh, you do want to be able to sell properties and dish out the capital, that's when the trust might be best. Then you have the situation where you possibly got high-value property which will go on appreciating forever. That's where the company might be the best option.
1: Brilliant. Do you have anything to add on, on that, Simon?
2: No, no. Again, it, it back to the
0: point: you need to look at it in, in the whole. I mean, you could you could have you could incorporate uh, the portfolio, and like you say, you could play around with the share rights. You could grab growth shares. You could the growth shares have a value. So at that point. You could play around with the articles to say that um, any future growth in the portfolio will go into those growth shares. So, in effect, you kind of uh, freeze the inheritance tax issues for the founding shareholders. You could gift some of those shares into a trust, but you have to again consider um, the issues of inheritance tax, uh, total lifetime transfers. You, you could trigger uh, tax charges in the trust if there's income rights attached to those growth shares. Then, obviously, the settlement legislation will probably taxing income if your kids are minor children, back on the parents. So it's quite complex to look at that, but you can do things. But you need to look at things really in the hole and try to tick all the boxes uh, of, of all the taxes.
1: Definitely. So there's, there's obviously several different things to look at when, when looking to mitigate Section 24. We touched on the, obviously, you gave a very good explanation on the difference between a partnership and a limited liability partnership. Would there be any case uh, where you would create a limited liability partnership in terms of residential property?
0: Uh, I mean, they, they operate. Obviously, an uh, LLP has members, yeah. uh, whereas a partnership has partners. But they're taxed exactly the same. You you look through the partnership to the individual members. But an LLP is a corporate body, so it, it's, it's created legally at company's house, and therefore you must dissolve it legally at company's house. Yes, it gives you limited liability the same as as, as, as a company but it, it is pretty much a partnership but uh, it's more formal so it, it will be useful maybe if you're renting out properties and there's risk of uh, being sued by your tenants that would be more useful whereas with a model uh, partnership there's no distinction therefore you are fully liable as a partner so in that sense it, it, it can be useful to use an LLP but there are downsides to using them as well.
1: Obviously you wouldn't be able to get mitigation of section 24 through an LLP.
0: Uh, no, that doesn't no. affect. It's, it's not a company. So trusts are affected by Vision 24, self-traders are, partnerships are, and LPs are
1: as well. Very interesting. So clearly from, from what we've discussed, going through the partnership to incorporation seems like a sensible idea if someone has done their homework and has looked at their, their exits and then Another thing to maybe consider would be um, having that corporate partner there for partnership as well. Um, But obviously, things to understand are looking at the exit, your your exit strategy, and also um, to make sure you read your mortgage terms as well. If you've got to let us know, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, something like that's happening, and uh, and to discuss with your family as well what you're what you're wanting to do in terms of inheritance and and what the goal is there um so yeah that's been that's been very very interesting is there anything else you'd like to discuss while we're here on mitigating section 24 or estate planning
2: i think we've probably covered most of it i mean we haven't talked a great deal about section 162 i mean it's um actually fulfilling the requirements, you know, you've got to make sure all the assets of the business are transferred. It is worth saying, though, that the one exception is cash. And uh, one of the questions uh, that you raised was, suppose you have a chap with a large property portfolio. He is uh, in a problem with Section 24, so he might want to incorporate um, suppose you've got young children and a problem with school fees. Mm-hmm. Well, quite an interesting exercise that. You see, if there is surplus cash around, I'd say on, on no account, transfer the cash to the company, keep it out. You might even go further and say, look, the best way to pay the school fees is to borrow some more money and transfer the liability to the company and use the cash you borrowed. To pay your school fees for the next few years because you can get the borrowing costs allowed within the company which you wouldn't if you did it yourself that's quite attractive there, there is a theoretical risk there which is worth just um, signaling could the revenue say look this extra borrowing which has created an extra interest charge why is that a business expense of the company because it's really being caused by your desire to pay school fees now that's a very interesting question and funnily enough it's very rarely pursued although i did have one case where they did pursue it the trouble is if you take the argument to its logical conclusion you might have to say, well, let's look at the borrowing of the individual, which he's transferring to the company, and let's look at the history of that borrowing. If it wasn't incurred to buy property, it's really a non-business borrowing and shouldn't give any interest relief in the company. But, you know, funnily enough, um, I shouldn't perhaps say this, the revenue don't take the point. I mean, if you start off with some borrowing and you incorporate your business, they tend to assume the borrowing has gone into the company, the company gets interest relief, that's the end of it. So I think the short answer to how you pay the school fees is not any clever structure of the company you're going to incorporate. It's get, get the money out before you incorporate
1: so borrow whilst it's in the personal name against the assets and then incorporate that into the into
2: the company. yes I mean you've got an existing mortgage, you go along to the lender and say, "Can I borrow an extra two hundred thousand because i've got to pay four year school fees or something like that Now what happens if people
1: are already have already incorporated? Is there anything clever on the uh, on the school no, fee. well,
2: that that that's less easy if you've already incorporated. I mean, the bird has flown, really. If you then started borrowing money in the company to pay out for school fees, it wouldn't be deductible. I don't think it may well be a well, It would be a distribution of some kind, so it wouldn't work. Okay. So I think it's like like everything in life, think before you act. Don't have kids. <laughs> uh, well, no, that's an, I can are all in favor of children. That's extremely I mean, funny. You know, whatever you do in this world, it usually has a ramification somewhere. And the wise person is the one who sits down, often with a good family solicitor, and says, right, let us look at all the ramifications of this decision. Even let's look 25 years ahead. Have we done something which is creating problems down the line? I Very important. Very good point.
1: Simon, anything else you wanted to add there? No, not
2: really.
0: I think we covered most of the points you wanted to discuss. I mean obviously companies are, are at the moment on an entity not affected by Section 24. The only way you, you're gonna try to mitigate the STLT if you do you go down any corporation routes to go buy a partnership. If there are some rules and calculations to do on that. Again, it, it comes down to, as I've mentioned before in previous podcasts, you need to really sit down and think these things through, get the planning done correctly at the time and try to consider Everything, not just the tax issues, the legal issues, uh, the accounting issues, the commercial issues, and also if it fits in with your family as well. Uh, um, That's the important thing. So it's not just a tax. It's it's the whole shebang needs to be uh, thought about, really.
1: So if our listeners want to get in touch with with you, maybe to take their incorporation um, a little bit further or, or maybe discuss what... What might be relevant for them? How can they get in, in touch with you? You
0: can email me, of course, um, at howley at bellhowley.com, and then I can liaise with Andrew. Um, and we can either do a video conference, which seems to be uh, the thing at the moment, <laughs> or we can, when things get back to normal, we can meet up and discuss.
2: But I'm happy to so take there's, there's one. Um, there's one extra point I think I, it's worth just making. Have we got time to do it? Absolutely. Well, it just seemed to me one one of the great virtues of incorporation, which we haven't actually mentioned, well, it's only mentioned in passing, is suppose you've got a valuable property, let's say it's worth a thousand, but it only costs you a hundred. That is a huge gain. If that property is part of a business, then incorporation has got one enormous advantage. When you put the company, the property into the company with the business for shares, the acquisition cost of that property to the company is a thousand. Now suppose that um, you then sold the property for a thousand. Um, you don't pay capital gains tax in the company. You don't pay corporation tax because its acquisition cost was a thousand. Now, in some cases, if that's, let's suppose the person who owns the property is, is age 70. So he's worrying about inheritance tax. This gives him a remarkable advantage because having put the business with the property into the company and sold it, now got a valuable company. There's no reason, of course, why the valuable company shouldn't then do something which qualifies for business property relief. He then dies, having owned it for two years, and says, whoopee, two things. One, I've no inheritance tax because it's business property relief. Better still, the gain of 900, which is hidden in those shares, disappears because there's no CGT on death. That is an incredibly, totally simple effective tax planning and it, that it, you're allowed to do it because of the way section 162 and incorporation relief works it's just mentioning that worth mentioning I think definitely that's a that's a brilliant
1: point thank you
2: well I think on, I think the, that, on that happy note we'll finish I
1: think, that, I think that nicely wraps things up so once again thank you very much to Andrew Thornhill QC and Simon Howley of Bell Howley for joining me uh, again, and hopefully we can uh, we can chat again soon on all things tax.
2: Yes, indeed. Thank you very much. Bye.
1: Please join me next time for more detailed discussions about property on the Rodcast.